Episode 138 of the Rudest Wrestling Podcast. Jason Bryant here with you along with Matt Dernlin. We've got some news coming down the pipe, Matt. We've had two coaching changes, one of which we've talked to Kerry Cole at here on this particular podcast. You can go back and listen on episode 137. You got a chance to talk to Kerry about his move to the U.S. Naval Academy. And we also had Chris Pendleton, assistant at Arizona State, hired as the new head coach at Oregon State, filling the vacancy that uh, Jim Zaleski, uh, I will, I'll don't really want to say left behind, but the position vacated uh, by Jim Zaleski and uh, not being having that contract renewed. And then, of course, on Monday, the NCAA announced and uh, announced is actually kind of a loose term. Uh, they, they mentioned that uh, the winter sports would not get the the year relief. Spring sports, as far as I know, still do, but winter sports and that created all sorts of firestorms. So uh, before we even get to the NCAA discussion, uh, Matt, I want you to circle back on some of the takeaways that you got from from your interview with Kerry about his move to Navy. And for those that didn't check it out, that is on episode 137 here of the Rooters Wrestling Podcast. Yeah, so I, I had the opportunity to talk to Kerry yesterday. One, it was a, it was a little different interviewing a guy that I actually do a podcast with. So that that kind of introduced a different aspect, but it was it was interesting nonetheless. I think for most people. It was somewhat surprising. I think collectively around the country, people were, they, they saw it, but they necessarily didn't understand it. Um, but if you, if, if you know, Carrie and you know how he's, he's wired, he's got very strong affinity to, to, to the military and, and any Academy specifically, but specifically for Navy, um, with his relationship with with Bruce Burnett and what a, a fundamental presence he was in his life as a coach and the time he had spent in Maryland running his clubs, he he was always in and around the Na- uh, the Navy program, so he had some previous ties, some previous familiarity with with the Naval Academy. He's got an affinity for for the military academies, um, so there was a natural pull there, um, literally leading the next leaders of our country, um, what was a poll. So I think a lot of people some, sometimes just assume that if you're a wrestling coach, you're just wrestling centric and you want the biggest, flashiest bells and whistles program out there. And I'm not saying Carrie didn't want that, but there was also some, some deeper, deeper residing motivations for him to, to make that move. And I think the underlying thing, it simply came down to heat, he wanted change. I think as a lot of, as a lot of, you know, people in this sport and in, in professions after a certain period of time, when you, when you've invested so much and you think you've maximized everything you've done for a program, naturally you're going to look for new challenges. We're all competitors, even though we're coaches, we're all still seeking competitive challenges. And I think he undertook one of the biggest challenges, you know, when he, when he, jumped on board with Campbell six years ago and what he had to navigate and resurrect that program literally from the studs and build it up into a potential top 20 program, which we both anticipated he would be able to, to achieve this year. But really I think he he was seeking a new challenge and it, it was as simple as that. And I think people just question because they naturally assume like Carrie's next move would be a quote unquote big time program and Carrie Carrie thinks Navy is a big time program and for all intents and purposes it's the number one public school in the country um 
it's got guaranteed 100% job placement, which is always good. So there's there's other selling points outside of just the wrestling component that that appealed to Kerry. So it was a fascinating interview. Um, and if you if you know Kerry and you, and you know how he's wired, it wasn't for me that surprising. Um, but yeah, you can go back and listen to it. We we had him on yesterday, so that that podcast is po- posted, and um, you'll get that firsthand perspective from Kerry and what his motivations truly were. And now Chris Pendleton, who has been basically talked about on on most every major head coaching opening for probably the last five years. He spent time as an assistant with Mark Branch at Wyoming. Of course, he had the great career at Oklahoma State and then spent the last several years on staff at Arizona State with head coach Zeke Jones. And uh, to me, this is a slam dunk hire. He's got that that California footprint, so he's from the West Coast, but he's also coached at some, you know, Wyoming is is a solid program, but it's not a power five school. Now he's going to a power five school uh, at Oregon state with a good tradition, 23 pack, eight pack, 10 pack, 12 titles, whichever conference you want to talk about it. Now they're in the, uh, the pack 12, of course, but uh, this is something where with, with those, those roots going up the, down the coast of California, a lot of people look at this and go, this is, this is, this was a no brainer. Yeah. I think, you know, as I was looking at this, I kind of dig in, you know, I think a lot of times when we see wrestling positions being posted, we naturally, we tend to look at who has the best credentials or who's done what or if as an athlete, you know, and and I tend as, as a former coach to look at the AD first and try and study his background a little bit to see how he's wired and seeing what trying, what trying, what footprint he's trying to place on, on an athletic department. And when you look at, Oregon State, I believe the AD has been there for two years. Um, but within that time, I think he's made seven or eight head coaching changes. So for me, that that speaks, this guy wants to win. He wants they, to they're compete. Looking, they're not just looking to win. They're looking Director's Cup. They're looking at at big sport. I mean, like Stanford owns that Director's Cup. And, you know, what what that is, is for those who are unfamiliar, that's a, a basically a measurement of uh, the points you get for each national championship and of course the ncaa sponsors x amount per division and you know stanford's got a ton of sports so they're in the mix of it every year but the director's cup for for the power five schools is kind of like that that piece of the pie and you know it's one of those things where when you see ad's get aggressive with their non-revenue sports that's where you know that there's 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 bigger goals there at the university and typically any AD, he's looking when he leaves that position, he's looking to leave a le- legacy on in some capacity, whether it's facilities growing, renovating, building new facilities. Is it really investing in your revenue generating sports, which typically football and basketball and putting them on the national stage and getting in, making that major BCS playoff push in football or making a final four run. But when you look at a guy, like you said, like this AD, who's made changes and invested in the Olympic sports, he wants departmental success across the board. So, you know, when you look at, at, you know, the PAC, the PAC 10, PAC 12 and Stanford's dominance in the collegiate cup and what Arizona state has done in the last three years, capturing the, th- the last three PAC, PAC 12, PAC 10 titles, you know, I don't think he had to look outside of his conference. He's like, well, look, look who's dominating the conference currently. And look who, who's a guy who's got all, all the pedigree, all, all the connections to elevate a West Coast program in pretty short order. I think it was a pretty, it was a no brainer. Like you said, the only, the only thing, the only thing, and this is, this, this is not a slight on Chris because it's, it, 
it's no slight on him. He just doesn't have head coaching experience. So I'm, I'm sure they vetted that out. I'm sure any AD who's wearing, wearing the decision-making of placing an assistant coach, I'm sure there's specific things that he directly asked Chris to make sure that he was prepared to run a program and understood. But, you know, with Chris's background, not only as a wrestler, but coaching at Oklahoma State, Wyoming, Arizona State, he's got good perspective perspectives from a lot of high-level coaches. So I'm sure, you know, I would be interested. Hopefully we can get him on the show at, at some point to get his perspective on, you know, what his vision for the Oregon State program is. Yeah, and if you've worked for Zeke Jones, you can work for anybody, and you can especially work for yourself. So, you know, that's one thing that, uh, you know, you, you get a lot of – What's the word I'm looking for? Um, you, you know, the word where you offer. Yeah. What's the man? I'm a writer. I can't even think about it. The uh, you know, delegation of duties. Yes. Yes. Right. When you seek, you get a lot of delegation. So that's one thing where Chris has probably had more hands on being a head coach at, as an assistant at Arizona State. And that that's a benefit. That's not a knock at Zeke. That's that's a way that, you know, his assistants end up uh, going on other places. But when we look at Oregon State and when you're this A.D., and again, this isn't a dig at Kerry because, you know, he was a Campbell, but Campbell beat Oregon State this year. In what universe, in what universe does a Power Five school lose to Campbell in nearly any sport? That type of outcome, for example, is probably going to get under, you know, under the burr under the saddle of the AD there. So, uh, you know, once I, you know, that result happens, you're like, mm, well, that's. Who knows? But uh, that's the type of thing that those type of ADs in Power Five conferences. No, don't care who you are. If you, you know, you're, you're not in a Power Five school, you shouldn't be losing to 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 mid majors. So that's one thing that uh, I'm sure Chris is uh, one of his charges is going to get the recruits to to not one. I don't know how how often you're going to be scheduling those teams uh, moving forward, especially in the early going. But uh, you know, your only loss is going to be other Power Five. So uh, Chris has got a lot of work to do there, though. That's the thing. There's, um, you know, once once Ronnie Bresser and Amar Desi were, uh, you know, graduated there. There wasn't a whole lot left. They had a couple qualifiers. Uh, the Willits brothers are twins from uh, from Colorado. Uh, they've both made the show. So uh, Devin Turner was was pretty solid this year. But uh, you know, as far as eligibility goes, I got to look up to see who's actually coming back. But uh, he's 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 got some rebuilding to do. So expect again uh, a, a pretty good jump the first season, then a lull the second, and then he starts building it in. And I think it probably won't really be till year four or five that we really see his impact. Uh, but you know, again, again, Chris is a guy that's been been put in there and and known as, uh, as as a real good head coaching candidate for a number of years. And it, it's good to see him land on his feet. He's always been a really good guy here. He's actually He was actually the first in-studio guest here when he was uh, recruiting Lance Bennick, uh, whose high school is about a, a quarter mile down the road. So, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's been somebody that's been on my radar for a long time. And, I'm you know, personally, I'm glad to see him get a shot. Yeah, I'm really excited for Chris. The next thing, it'll be interesting to see how he fills out his staff because that – That'll be the next statement. I think Oregon State made a, a really good statement on the national scene about where where they where they expect, not where they hope, where they expect the program to go, right? And a part of that will be who he brings in to fill out his staff. So I that'll be in, interesting over the next couple of weeks. I know there's speculation already talked about there about who will follow him. Um, so that'll that'll be interesting to see how he fills that out because that's that's when you really formalize things and start moving things ahead. So right. I'm Matt, sure that yeah, Matt, with your background, what do you look for as an assistant? If you, you've got a head coach, you've got, you've had a couple head coaching positions. What did you look for when filling a staff? Number one, I had to just really inventory myself and be honest about where I had, where my weaknesses were. You know, 
as an assistant coach, you get to, you get exposed through depending on the position you're in and the delegation of the head coach, you get exposed to a bunch of different responsibilities. Before I became a head coach, I kind of got exposed to every every area. And so I really had to inventory and and figure out what my weaknesses were and try and find someone that could complement that to make it a strength. Um, and the next thing is I I wanted the best guys. I wanted the best guys, number one, that were loyal to me, that I knew that were, were going to be in the fight for, with me no matter what, good and bad, you know, feast and famine. Um, and then the, the next thing, I, I just wanted people that that bought into my vision, whoever that was. Um, I know when I when I went to Clarion, I brought Troy Letters with me from Penn State. And then when I went up to Binghamton, I, I brought Tion Ware with me. And a lot of people on the surface, they were like, oh, you brought this quote unquote big name guy. Yeah, they did have big names and they were really accomplished as athletes, but I knew who they were as people. I knew they were completely loyal to me. I knew they they bought in and believed in my philosophy and vision for the program. And so with you know, when you've got all those complementary pieces in place, that's how you you grow a staff. And, you know, I think sometimes people get short-sighted and just look on the the mat pedigree. What have you done on the mat? And you think that that'll naturally translate into a ineffective coach on every area. But, you know, that's just one component. And we, as, as we've talked about so many times, I mean, the recruiting aspect, the fundraising, the admissions, you know, the uh, alumni engagement, all these things. There's so many, so many other things outside of the practice room that are integral to running a high level program. So that that's going to be critical. And, and that's the thing with Chris, he's been exposed to all these things. So he knows what he needs. He's got an understanding. And I'm sure as many times as he's been in the mix for head coaching positions, he's been able to, as he's gone through the interview process, kind of formalize what he needs even better and, and grow a better understanding. So at this point, I think Chris probably knows exactly what he needs and you'll probably see him fill out his staff in pretty short order. Well, what's not surprising is the number of Oklahoma state graduates that were uh, in the mix here. Zach Esposito was, was listed as one of the finalists as was, let's see, I got my note here, Adam Hall from Boise state, but coaching at NC state, but a Boise state alum from up in uh, Bonners Ferry. So he's from that part of the country. And then Kevin Ward, the head coach at Army West Point. So two of the, uh, well, three of the four finalists were Oklahoma State, State Cowboys. So uh, John Smith coaching tree of head coaches continues to grow now that Chris has got his job. And, you know, what's that say for ADs looking at, you know, Iowa's got the most alumni that, that are head wrestling coaches in Division One, then followed by uh, Oklahoma State. So what's it say when you've got guys coming from these type of programs that make them attractive as head coaches? Well, I think as an AD, there's there's built-in lines of communication, you know, every everywhere. I mean, the athletic community is fairly small. And then when you start looking at the wrestling community, it's even smaller, smaller there. So when you dig into that, there's all these points of connectivity and the, all these auxiliary relationships that are built through athletic directors having experience with Okie State grads as coaches and how they are to work with. So obviously, you know, the way John has led his program and the way he's produced these head coaches and the way they interact and engage with their athletic departments has to be pretty good. I mean, they've, they've got to be pretty good on all levels 
for his coaching tree to continue to expand. And I, you know, I, I think that's an important thing, you know, to head coaches as they get later in their careers. Like what is my lasting legacy? Not just what I did with my program, but beyond that, how do I, how did I extend my program into the national community beyond the Okie state border? And, you know, John's done a really, really impressive job. And it's, it's almost, how many head coaches are there now from Okie State? I think, it, I think it's nine. I think Seth Duckworth from Pistols Firing put out a tweet the other day, said it was nine head coaches. Off the top of my head, I couldn't reel them off. I can probably reel off a bunch of them. But, yeah, nine apparently is the number. I know I was floating around that. For a while, they had 13. I think they're in that 11, 12 range. Uh, probably less now, obviously, since Jimmy Zaleski's not in the picture anymore. But, uh, yeah, I always been leading that, that game for a while. But now nine for Oklahoma State is pretty impressive. Really impressive. Really impressive. And I want to look at the just the being able for Chris to sell the tradition at Oklahoma, excuse me, at, at Oregon State. You know, the colors are the same, so he doesn't have to change much of his college wardrobe. But uh, we look at Oregon State's history. Th- this program has been around forever. You know, it's it's got guys, you know, John Dustin, Ron Finley are both in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you've got names that are multiple time champs like Jess Lewis, Greg Strobel, and of course, uh, the monstrous Les Gutches, who is. Um, monstrous in terms of his now bodybuilding career. Jeez, have you seen that guy lately? <laughs> but, uh, He's a freak of nature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was a freak before, but jeez. Yeah. Um, you know, they've got 12 individual national championships with uh, multiple titles won by uh, by Lewis Gutches, Dan Hicks, and Greg Strobel. They're 12th all-time in the number of wrestlers that have competed at the NCAA championships. They're 16th in total titles and 16th in total All-Americans. So there is a really good wrestling tradition there. Uh, obviously losing Oregon as a rival hurt back in 2006 in, in the battle for those in-state kids, which they were winning most of. But now there, there's a new new era here that, that's got to begin. And, and Chris, is, there's, there's really, really good wrestlers in Oregon, and they're very, very versed in, in the freestyle and Greco-Roman. So that's one thing that there's a pretty good talent pool. And there's a pretty good pool of D1s to, to pull in from nearby Washington. So uh, th- that's really th- the right guy that can hit those hit those names. And Chris is still not that far out of out of college that, you know, these high school coaches that will remember him, they can talk about watching Chris Pendleton beat Ben Askren. I think that's a, that's a big selling point, as popular as Ben is amongst the kids these days. Yeah, here's a guy that beat him like six out of seven times or something like that. So you can talk to the kids. He's got that. He's still got a, he's got a great personality. But again, that tradition, that's something you want to be able to sell to bring Oregon State back. They've won trophies. They've been, you know, top five in the country in the past, they've had really good dual meet teams. They've known to get big crowds. Heck, they got a great PA announcer too. So these are things that are good selling points for the kids in the program. And that's one thing that um, the history isn't lost on Oregon State. Proud tradition, as I said, 23 uh, Pac-12 championships. And that's something I think Chris can sell to the older coaches. He can sell you know, his reputation as, as a competitor to the younger coaches. And then he's still, you know, he's 38 years old. So he's still young enough to really to roll around on the mat. I mean, he was he was sitting there still competing at the Olympic trials not that long ago. So he's he's a guy that still has ha, has it in terms of being able to get his hands on kids and show watch this. So uh, th- these are all things that I think are, are great selling points for Oregon State moving forward. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, when you look at Oregon State, it checks it checks all the boxes. When you're looking at all right, is this is this athletic department is this institution built in ready? to develop a high-end program. It is. Now, let's give him some time, right? Because the natural progression is to jump to say, oh, Oregon State should be a top-10 team. Yes, it can be. It can be, and it will be, but give it some time. It doesn't 
You just don't snap your fingers just because a new head coach jumps in. Don't expect Oregon oh, State to be banging oh, down the door. Fans love, <laughs> love to say, ah, oh, this team should be top 10 every year. Well, who are you going to bump out of that top 10? Who are you going to bump out of that top five? You're going to bump Cornell out? Really? Bump Minnesota? Iowa? You know, I mean, Oklahoma State, you're going to bump, bump these guys out? Oh, well, you're going to bump Penn State out there. You know, you're going to bump all these teams out that are perennially, perennially, that's a word, not a very good word, but a perennially, it's like, you know, plants. Are you going to bump them out of the top 10? No, it, it takes a while to unseat a traditional top 10 team. Oregon State has been there. So as a program, it's not it's not going to be uncharted territory. Matter of fact, some of these alumni, they, they, they expect it because they've been there, done that. They want to do it again. So those are some things that it's it's not like trying to do it at Campbell, which was you know Kerry's trying to break into the top twenty for the first time there. Top twenty, you can you can be you can be top twenty every year. That's fine. Who pays attention? You're winning trophies. You're top five. You're top four. Taking home a trophy. You're top ten. You're on that that second scroll at the NCAA championships. That's where you want to be. So you know we're yeah, we're a top ten program. That's a lot easier to do. But it's uh, to say. But uh, you know there's there's programs. Oh, I get the right recruits. Oh, they should be top ten. They should be top ten. You hear that about everything. But again, this is a legit program that has that has that history, has that uh, the pedigree to really make that happen. So let's see how long it takes Chris to to make that happen. Yeah, and I guess the the first obstacle. It's a real real and obvious obstacle that we're all facing right now with the crisis going on in in the country and worldwide is he can't bring anybody to campus. Like he can't tangibly fit. That's what I want to know. I, I, I should, I texted him congrats, but I'm sure his phone got, was, was being blown up. I'm curious. Did he, did, how did he do the visit? I mean, the interview process, typically Matt, as you know, you, you get the call or you get the, you know, the interview, then you take you know, a phoner and then they bring you in typically for a second or third interview. Well, there, there wasn't a whole lot of time between, uh, you know, we're, we're talking, it's still the month of March. We're talking what two weeks, three weeks that, uh, that, that, Jimmy was shown the door and then we've got a hire. I mean, I don't know if Chris even made it on campus, but he's, I'm sure he's been there, but and, and, oh, I'm sorry, JB, go ahead. No, but I'm saying, you know, did he hire? I mean, he's seen the campus, but I'm saying, did they make the hire site unseen essentially? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure Chris is doing his due diligence and the administration was doing their due diligence about finding and vetting Chris and Chris finding out and vetting Oregon state as much as he possibly can, but without, physically or tangibly being on campus and learning what the campus community is really about, because each institution is slightly different. Even, even though you reside in the same, same athletic conference, each institution is wired just a little bit different and has its own personality and, and own characteristics. And until you actually get there and, you know, embrace what this new culture is, there will be probably a challenge. Um, and so how Chris navigates that and who knows when and if the likelihood of, of starting to get kids onto campus, because that's the biggest selling point. You know, you can talk, talk to kids, but you know, most kids, most parents, they want to kick the tires. You can't just sell a vision over the phone. You really want to see what this experience is going to look like on a daily in a yearly basis. So that's going to be, I, I'm sure they're trying to figure that out. And I don't know if you put it, put together interactive presentations that you present to recruits, but I know what he's going to have to do is get pretty, pretty creative in his recruiting efforts over the next couple of months before he can pr- probably realistically expect to bring anybody on campus. That's a good point. And that's uh, also an interesting segue into our uh, next topic, which is 
the fact that nobody's coming on campus. There was no championships in I don't know how many sports. We have like 13, 14 championships that that were not competed. It wasn't just wrestling. I know we're talking across all that's just division one. We got all these situations arising in Monday again, the announcement uh, again, we're almost not announcement that winter sports would not be granted an extra year of eligibility. And it immediately set off a, a so as you might expect a social media firestorm, everybody from athletes to coaches to media. I know that there were some columns uh, in, in major wrestling publications and major newspapers that cover wrestling pretty good for example like the des moines register about why they believe that the athletes should get the extra year and you know we heard a lot of things about right thing to do and uh, ultimately the it was a decision that was made that impacted pretty much everybody in the negative and the problem here is we're dealing with an organization that is the ncaa and full disclosure i do receive a check from the ncaa for announcing two of their national championships each year i am not on their payroll annually but i will just throwing that out there just to make sure you know i'm coming from and where my position is not necessarily uh protection or or taking their side but i do have to play devil's advocate a little bit because only the only time i see things happen where one sport gets to do something that another doesn't is is maybe college football because they have their own playoff system uh which isn't an ncaa sport then they have this red shirt situation with the four four games and then they still get to keep a red shirt i'd love to see those type of things applied to all sports but in large, these championships, especially the non-revenue championships, there's basically the same policies are in place. So you're not going to say, "Well, this this sport gets to do this, while this sport doesn't get to doesn't doesn't get to do that," and you're not going to get a lot that a lot of that from the NCAA. So the the decision they had to make was a blanket one for the winter sports. And as much as we hate to say it, it's it's pro, it's the one decision I think everybody hates the most. But those of uh, those of us that look at things, and I'm not saying I'm in this group, but I'm saying those those of you, those of us, whoever, that look at the the finances behind having to redo. Let's see. Here's all the, the sports championships that were impacted. Of course, we had Division One, Division Two, and Division Three wrestling. We had men's and women's indoor track and field, all divisions. Men's and women's basketball, moneymaker, uh, all three divisions there. Men's and women's ice hockey, Division One and Division Three, because there is no Division Two ice hockey. Men's and women's gymnastics, men's and women's skiing, men's and women's Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three swimming and diving, rifle, fencing, and bowling. Apply a universal eligibility standard to every single one of those sports and see how it gets treated equally. So that was the problem, I think, that they did, and I think they, in such a short time, they could not probably vet all of those sports and every nuance within division one, division two and division three with those sports. And they just said, you know what, this is going to hurt the most, but it also makes the most financial sense. It also makes the most financial sense for the NCAA. And I think it makes the most financial sense for the individual schools, because we talked a little bit about, uh, will programs be dormant? What's the, my, 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 my real issue here is what's the collateral damage going to be? If we say, yeah, give everybody a year. Do we see schools, struggle to fund those things. I mean, is it pay your own way? Well, some schools have extra scholarship money. Some schools, it's $65,000 a year. Some schools, it's 20. So there's so many nuances and we create another, a more division of the haves and have nots. So uh, I realize I've kind of put my opinion into that opener there, Matt, but uh, it sucks. I feel horrible for all of these athletes. And I just, I don't want to say this was the right decision because I don't feel there's justice in this decision, but being logical and being aware of the way college finance, we've already lost one school. McMurray College closed up shop. They were in financial trouble anyway, but this was the death knell for them. And with it went a men's and women's wrestling program. So 
let's just worry about the collateral damage here if we're trying to fund all these extra years for people too. So that's my little opening soapbox on on it's not not really an opinion on the matter. It's just things to consider when when trying to come up with options for this. No, I think I think you laid that out very well, JB. Um, everybody can agree on emotional on an emotional level. We feel gutted for these athletes. You know, I I have seen online all day and seen on social media uh, all day about these tributes to these seniors, these outgoing seniors, and the impact that they made on their programs and the opportunity to finish their career in the way and the fashion that they wanted to. So emotionally everybody's on board. We, we know emotionally we wanted these kids to have the opportunity to compete for their national championships on every sport, not just wrestling on every sport. I feel for these, I feel for these at student athletes, but when you, when you, when you step back and you look at, look at the financial realities, the institutional realities, the education uh, eligibility realities, and all, all the moving parts and the different situations, both both financially and and such, for every one of the NCAA Division One, Two, and Three institutions, like how do you navigate through that? It it just it's just too much. Especially, you know, we we said it. Unfortunately, we we kind of called this a couple of weeks ago. You know, in the emotion of the moment, we both stepped back and we looked looked at this situation practically about what, how the NCA, how the administrators would start looking at this, we kind of already kind of had the feeling of where this, this decision would go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and then to your point, JB, I don't think people recognize like how many institutions of higher education are on financially shaky ground. I can tell you when I was at Clarion, the whole PSAC system, and this is five, six years ago. Yeah, didn't Cheney Cheney State bailed out of the NCAA, right? I mean, they're HBCU, but they remember the PSAC. They're they're not they they dropped they dropped out of the NCAA. They cut a bunch of yeah. So I mean, you just look at the 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 Pennsylvania State schools, and they've all been under financial duress over for the last five, six years. Um, So when you tack on these other financial obligations and burden these institutions unnecessarily. Um, yeah, we, we could see some really un, unintended consequences and we could see institutions of higher education totally closing their doors. So yeah. well, the um, revenue share too. there, we don't have a men's basketball championship and the TV rights that accompany that we lose. A, we don't, we, we lose the frozen four makes money. Men's basketball makes money that we've got, you know, in the, in the, like I said, in the spring, we got the college world series and, and lacrosse, those events, those are four championships that make money. So uh, we we lose three three you know we get the frozen four men's basketball and wrestling they make the NCAA money so these revenue shares these revenues are not going to get back to the schools and you know how much money they lose on students not showing up and all the extra money from whether it be you know the 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 school library buying your penance and your you know the the textbooks which is a complete racket anyway you know Matt I once bought a seventy five dollar textbook for a six week class and got eighteen bucks back for it anyway that's <laughs> another, another you know twenty five years ago even with the cost of inflation but we, there are all these revenue streams for these colleges aren't there. And then if they have to pick up the tab for an extra year on some of these people that they've already had their, their school budget for, again, I worry about the collateral damage of these. We have, we, we what we want to see in a perfect world. I think we both, we all want, okay, everybody gets the extra year. Boom, we go. 
You know, it's going to be weird for stats, but everybody wants to see a wrestler like Spencer. Even if you're not a Hawkeye fan, you want to see the opportunity for a guy like Spencer Lee win four titles or somebody stop him from winning four titles. For example, you know, I'm sure that was the the, the case when Bannock and McElravey were coming through. They want to see these guys win four, but it's also like amazing drama when they don't win it. Or, you know, when when Marionetti beats McElravey or, or, you know, Mark Schultz beats beats Bannock, it's like those type of things you know, are be, become history. They become a lore of the sport. So, yeah, we've only had four four-timers. It's, it'd be great to have seen Spencer at least check off title number three and then create more drama going into next year. But there's – I mean, I'm less worried about the stats, but, I mean, are we going to have situations where if we did give him the extra year, does Aaron Brooks win, you know, potentially win five Big Ten titles? What do you do about that? What do you do about the records? You go, you know, you get five and four. Well, Kerry's format or his five and four and get rid of red shirts is, is, is four postseasons. We've already had – we started our postseason. We, we wrestled our qualifiers. And and when we go down to Division three, where so, – like imagine the kid from Johns Hopkins – and I, I actually was in an, in a discussion with a, a high a high level Division one coach today, and that was not a a public discussion, so I won't say who it was. But we were talking about points, and I said, "What about say a kid from Johns Hopkins?" And which the sticker price at that school? I mean, it's a fine academic institution in Baltimore, known for its lacrosse. Uh, one uh, one alma mater of uh, Quint Kesnick. So to wet your uh, your ESPN whistle, there, folks, is you know is that kid that qualified? Is he going to go through another year? And pay sixty five, seventy thousand dollars for two days. For two days, I mean, we could. And while not plausible, while not plausible, uh, possible, statistically possible, you could wrestle the Division Two and Division Three regional championships again, and you could get a completely different one hundred and eighty wrestlers. Well, again, not likely, but the statistics do actually say it, it, it could happen in the most extreme circumstances. You could have because compl- they're a regional system, top three in each region go. So you could have a completely different. So it's not like these 330 that had a chance to go from the division one chance. Those are probably those athletes. There were some upsets in those conference tournaments and they did. You had guys sneak in, you know, with sub 500 records and things like that. But. Ultimately, you know, the 280 that earn their spots are, are the 280, 283 that are going to go. So those coming back, you know, they're probably going to get there again. Okay, they get their second chance. Division two and does division three doesn't do that. And you can't really make policy for a blanket policy for one sports championships that isn't really applied. Uh, you kind of be kind of uniform, even though the divisions are different. But and just worry, like. It, there's no guarantee, you know, Aaron Brooks is going to get back to the national tournament, but is, is, is the kid that was fourth or third in the region and he got hot out of the mid East or, or whatever region it is in division three, is, is he going to have to go through a whole nother year and, you know, maybe wrestle the tournament of his life to get there. And that's not an opportunity. I, I just, you know, those, those situations in the sport of wrestling, we have to be aware of that. There is more to life than division one wrestling. There's over a hundred and some division three schools. There's we're approaching division two numbers that are, you know, they're in the sixties. They're catching, they're going to catch up to division one. So there's again, a lot more of these smaller schools to pay attention to. And their presidents vote in the NCAA too. They have members of these competition committees and such. So just remember, again, I've, I've kind of, beating this dead horse for most of my career is there's more life than division one wrestling. So those athletes, the ones that were sitting there crying on the mat in Sioux Falls and Cedar Rapids, those are the athletes you also have to consider. 
So yeah, sure, it's it's might not be super expensive to go to George Mason or Old Dominion to come back for for an extra year, but it's super expensive to do that at Williams College. It's super expensive to do that at Johns Hopkins. May not be that that expensive at Nebraska Kearney, but it's going to be expensive at the University of Chicago. So just those are all the things we have to consider when saying, all right, one year, and it's and it's it's not just easy as saying, hey, well, if give them the year option, if they want to pay for it on their own, they can do it. Well, again, you got a guy at a state school that sticker price is a lot less than. And the guy at the at the uh, the big school, I mean, you're going to give up your education for two days. I mean, it's 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 a hard decision. I mean, you choose those those places for, you know, for reasons academically and athletically. I just don't think one simple blanket thing can apply. And that is why we're at what we're at with the NCAA, because one blanket situation cannot be applied, not even to wrestling. You can't apply the same thing to wrestling and swimming and diving. It's nuts. It's nuts. Yeah, it's it's just it's just way too complex, JB. If, like you said, if it was one or two, I wish it was. Point, easy. I wish we could just do it, and you know the CVBs could could just all right. Let's just move. We're going to move Minnesota from March. All right, let's put it in November. Uh, let's just do this. Let's just shift everything. If it were that easy, we could be Thanos, snap our finger, and put everything that was supposed to be in March into another month or into next year. It would be great, but guess what? That's not reality. There is no whatever stone from Thanos to 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 snap the fingers and undo what what happened with this this COVID nineteen thing. And I think a lot of times people look at the NCA and say they this is just this greedy behemoth of an of you know a governance entity that that's just lording over the athletes. But people have to under, understand that the committees that that made these decisions are made up primarily of university presidents and uh, institutional cabinet members. And so you had a broad spectrum on every level from BCS schools all the way down, you know, to D3 presidents sitting on different committees, making a collective decision for all of the governing bodies, one, two, and three. Um, so, to your point, I mean, we can't ask. We have to defer to people that know better than us. And those people that made the, these decisions for right right or wrong, they know better than us. They're in, in positions where they're literally, they have their pulse and finger on everything that's going on and running and affecting an academic institution. So it wasn't the NCA. It's these committee members that passed on the recommendations to the NCA. And these committees were made up of university presidents. So, um, you know, that's all we can say. I mean, that's, you know, and I while, mean, they made, while Mark, yeah. And while Mark Emmert made the decision to, to, to cease the championships and he, he takes the, takes the, uh, the onus on that one. Again, it's not. Well, I say we're not. We're not going to do this. I mean, again, we we had committees and things of that nature as you were as you were outlining. Another thing too that was also brought up is, well, why can't each sport dictate how they handle this? Well, you okay? Have you ever you've been to the NWCA coaches convention? You know how hard it is to get you know at the breakout <laughs> sessions to just get the Division One coaches. Which I'll just use even though we got more than seventy uh, seventy five to get seven. You know, let's just say seventy to get 70 coaches in attendance on the same page. Ain't going to happen. Imagine doing that for the 351 men's ba- men's and women's basketball coaches each to determine what you know what's what's going to be right for the men's basketball. Isn't necessarily are you going to apply that to women's basketball? Are, they, are you going to apply everything the same there? What what about the I think there's 440 something uh 447 I think. Division 3 schools, you're going to get them all on. So okay, so then you've got 1000 
over a thousand basketball coaches for each gender. You're gonna you're gonna get them together and come up with a solution that's gonna make everybody happy. You think basketball? You think wrestling's tough to get anything going through? Look at these the the sports sponsorship. There's like 295. Uh, well, soccer's a bad example because it's it's in the in the fall, but uh, you know, swimming and diving over 200 programs in Division One. So I mean, get all these coaches. I mean, to do that, you want to talk about chaos. It's it's put it on the sports to decide and then no. say, the OK, well, then you would really have a situation. that's like, well, look at wrestling did and look at what. Well, you know, because, you know, basketball is always kind of the, the the whipping boy amongst the fans of non-revenue sports like, well, basketball gets what they want. Well, they bring in a crap ton more money than we do. So they move the needle, too. So, uh, you know, I mean, if we want individual sports, we can do great things individually but to try to get all these member sports to try to if they were to to try to police themselves and come up with a solution now well maybe 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 there is something that comes down the pipe and maybe we learn from from this we get a contingency plan in place because i guarantee you the next time there's a global pandemic and this thing comes down the pipe and we have to make a decision there's probably going to be plans in place because i don't think anybody wants to cancel another season in any of these no. so thankfully we can create i mean this sucks it's the hardest way to learn a lesson but again we we've got to make sure that you know i i've always come from this place that i don't feel like any athlete is more valuable than the other i don't like you know walking around campus i never felt the basketball players were more important than the guys in the swimming and diving team or the, or the women on the women's soccer team so uh again i i don't like the caste system that is college athletics that's more of an ethical thing but um I just I don't feel we should treat athletes any differently. And that's that's kind of one thing I think the NCAA for 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 better or for worse, they're kind of doing the same thing with these winter athletes uh, with these winter sports athletes. Thank you know what? Yes, they're treating them differently than the spring sports athletes, but I'm sure they're looking at the numbers, the percentages of the season that were completed. You know, at more than half of our wrestlers seasons were 100 percent complete. I mean, out of Division three, you have, you know, 100, 100, 110 schools. You had 180 at the at the nationals wrapped up so it's it's one of these things where percentages you got a lot of playing time i mean yeah march is everything but i'm sure those things also played a role in how much of the season was actually completed and uh again you know we got basketball teams that didn't get the. i mean i love march madness i mean i hate the fact that the opening weekend's the same ta- same weekend as the ncaa wrestling tournament but you know i mean i, I like these other sports too i mean I've been, you know the d2 festival down you know where we where they Every four years, they put swimming and diving and indoor track and wrestling all together. Those are great experiences. And, you know, those other sports, those athletes deserve theirs. And I'm sure their coaches and their their podcasts and they're, they're arguing the same thing we are. And they're probably arguing a completely different solution that would never be applied to wrestling. And our, our position probably couldn't be applied to rifle or skiing. How can you move a skiing? How are you going to move it? Where are you going to move the skiing championships if you put it in, in you know, move it to later? Well, you're going to have to go to Alaska or wherever the only places that got snow. I mean, I mean, I I hate to be, I'm not making a joke about it, but there's only a certain window where you can have skiing championships and, you know, you can, you can say, oh, it's just skiing. Well, it's, it's, a, it's important to them, just like our sport's important to us. And I guess one, you know, one final thing on this, for me, a saving grace and a possible silver, silver lining that's in place that probably not many people are, are looking into that the NCAA did have contingencies and insurances in place for catastrophic catastrophic events where they could recoup some money and therefore we can have next year's championships. And I, I know that their coffers are pretty well lined, but could you imagine if they didn't forecast or project out something bad possibly happy, happening at 
a certain time and the fall championships maybe being affected because you know the coffers were bare and they couldn't fund championships but i'm glad there's there's insurances that they've had protections in place they've had plans in place if and when a situation like this can happen so it won't interrupt our championships moving forward so yes it hurts in the moment but at least we can at at a certain point we can start looking ahead towards next year I know. I, and, and again, I mean, I'm sure there, there's, there's going to be some people that disagree with the, the what ifs and sounds like we're making, I'm not making excuses. I'm just bringing things up that were, that you have to consider. I mean, just, these are things you have to be aware of because again, uh, I feel like the athlete at Williams college is just as important to the sport of wrestling as Aaron Brooks is. Aaron Brooks has got a lot more fans and he might be more exciting to watch, but you know, they're still, a qualifier for the sport of wrestling. They're wrestling for the same thing. They have the same goals and dreams in mind. Okay. So those are the type of, those are the type of athletes we also need to be respectful of too. It's not just, uh, you know, we lose Spencer Lee winning four. Well, we lose the opportunity for the guy from the coast guard who was undefeated to win a national title. So we lose that type of moment too. I mean, we lose John Boyle from Western new England, having a chance to repeat, you know, we, we lose the, uh, Pat Pecora, a chance to win a national championship as a coach after setting, you know, the lifetime record, for, for dual meet wins. So we lost a lot that was outside of Division One realm. And I'm sure every single athlete there, once they're, they, they, everybody's going to want them back. Not, well, not everybody. You know, uh, you know, I think some people have said, no, nah, I'm not going to come back. Some people have already signed endorsement deals. And then, you know, we've talked about the Ivies and the service academies, and there's going to be some, some people. And the, the, the question is, is if, if, if the seniors or everybody was granted the opportunity to come back, I mean, there's like 90 something seniors, I think was the number, give or take, how many of them would come back, Matt? I, I would say probably more than half, but maybe some of them that were already all Americans are like, all right, I got stuff lined up. I'm, I'm out of here. I mean, you know, the, the, the Drexel kids have awesome, awesome co-ops ready to go for, for their, you know, their year. I mean, there's, there's so many different things that each institution has. I mean, Merchant Marine Academy guys, they're, they're going out to sea. So, I mean, what, what's going to happen? So, so many moving parts. And again, uh, with, with a blanket eligibility thing, the devil would be in the details. And that's one thing that I, I, I'd gone back and forth with the coach about. And it's, I don't think there's a right answer. I just know that there's the, 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 was this the right answer? I don't know, but it was the most painful one. It was, and it was probably the most logical as much as, again, we hate it. I hate the outcome. I hate it, but we, Oh, we have to freaking deal with it, basically. Yes, unfortunately, it was the right decision. As painful as it is, it well, was. I'm not it was the right. right. I'm just saying it was the most logical. Doesn't necessarily. Well, it was. It was. I think it was. I think it was necessary. I think when you when you talk about the realities, the real realities, and the fallout that would have taken place if they moved to restore eligibility. Yeah, there there would have been a percentage affected and satisfied with the outcome but the residual fallout and the you know like i said seeming, you know the collateral damage is, is collateral I mean, damage there would, be, yeah. there would be there's negative implications that we haven't even thought about you yes. know there's not even rules we know how to exploit yet because it hasn't been there because you know somebody would probably exploit the situation because that's what we do on that matt Kind of, kind of beating that dead horse, beating that horse till it's dead, or you know, whatever. I don't know. I don't know. I'm running out of out of metaphors and similes and analogies and things to throw out at you. But we are going to do some topical fun in the the coming episodes, and we'll we'll just tease one we're working on right now. So back in 2005, the NCAA, in partnership with the National Wrestling Hall of Fame and some other wrestling outfits, developed the 75th anniversary team. I actually have a poster of it somewhere uh, in this office, and that was 
15 wrestlers that were the the top of the pre the first 75 years of of NCAA wrestling and you had five lightweights five middleweights five upperweights so what Matt and I are going to do is we're going to go back and analyze the 75th anniversary team would they get right would they get wrong then we're going to move on forward and we're going to look at this would be the the 90th it's been 15 years so what would we do for a 90th team? Who do you bump out? Who do you add? Do you get to add more spots? So we're going to go topical. We're going to going to be arguing, um, you know, careers versus one another. We're going to have some absolutely uh, blasphemous statements. We're going to be accused of heresy when it comes to who we're booting off of this team. So that's one thing that uh, when, when we're looking for content, this is one thing that I'm still bitter about somebody that was left off the 75th anniversary team and i'm going to come in guns blazing totally biased for my guy so those are some things that we're looking forward to doing the next couple episodes and matt while we're kicking around those ideas uh you know you, you start researching then we start discovering things that are really really interesting and how it's like watching top chef the just the it, it might be something minute that gets you you know pack your knives and go it's gonna be it's gonna be cutthroat i can't wait no it's gonna be a lot of fun it's what i should do is go into your archives and order all the the fan the fan guides that you've ever created so I can get up to speed so I understand all the history. I think I understand it, but if we're going to go into the subtleties and I know some of the arguments that you want to be uh, that you want to make, so I better be packing pack I'm, my I'm, lunch for this I'm, one. I'm going to blow some people's minds with who I'm kicking off this list. But with that, that's called a tease. That's called the next show for episode 138 and Matt Dernley. My name is Jason Bryant. Thanks for checking out the Rudis Wrestling Podcast.